Chinese internet companies operate at a massive scale. WeChat has over a billion users and is widely used as a primary means of payment by urban Chinese consumers. Alibaba ships 12 million packages per day, which is four times the amount of Amazon. JD.com, a Chinese e-commerce company, has perhaps the largest production Kubernetes installation in the world. China's rapid adoption of internet services, combined with a large population and a growing middle class, has led to the creation of internet giants on par with the social networks, e-commerce sites, and ride-sharing startups of the United States. Last November, I attended the first KubeCon China, and I saw firsthand how the Chinese internet companies are using open-source software to scale their infrastructure. Despite the differences between the U.S. and China, the culture of technologists at KubeCon felt very familiar. In some ways, it was just like any other Kubernetes conference that I've attended. There were a large number of engineers trying to find the cutting edge of technology and learning how to solve the problems that they're facing back at the office. There were presentations on scaling databases and service meshes and machine learning on Kubernetes, and outside of each of these presentation halls, there were tables where you could pick up a translation device so that Chinese-only and English-only presentations could be understood by the other nationality. So if you're Chinese, you could put on a headset and listen to the English translation and vice versa. Dan Kahn joins the show today. He is the executive director of the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. And we talk about the Chinese internet companies and how they're adopting Kubernetes and the general culture of Chinese technology companies. We also talk about the Kubernetes landscape more broadly and the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, which is the organization within the Linux Foundation that organizes KubeCon. Before joining the CNCF, Dan has worked as an entrepreneur, an engineer, and an executive at several technology companies. He is a seasoned technologist and always great to talk to. We've done a couple different previous episodes with Dan. And before we get to the show, I want to mention that we have a newsletter. You can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash newsletter to sign up and get a weekly blast of news and information and uh, commentary about what's going on in the world of software engineering. And we also are conducting a listener survey. We would love to know what we're doing wrong and what we're doing right. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash survey and give us some feedback. And if you want to, you can enter your email address for a chance to win some swag, like a Software Engineering Daily hoodie, or perhaps even a mug, or some socks, items from our store. With that, let's get on with today's episode with Dan Kahn. Dan Kahn, you are the executive director of the CNCF. Welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. I had a great time at KubeCon in China, and we spoke there at some length. And what was interesting about our conversation was some of the reflections on Chinese software companies and how they compare to those of the U.S. Give me your perspective on how Chinese software companies compare to those of the U.S. 
Sure. I think the biggest thing that China and, and particularly the companies that are focused around software have going for them is that they don't have all of the history that we've built up in Europe and, and the US. And so the biggest example of this is that they didn't spend 100 years investing into fixed line telephones. They jumped directly to mobile phones. And so that's meant that their usage has uh, skyrocketed, but also the ubiquity has enabled things like mobile payments and, and such that in many ways are, are far ahead of the US and Europe. On the software company side, I think there's a, a newer phenomenon where a, a ton of companies just don't have the same 10 or 15 year investment into virtualization. They kind of skipped right over the previous generation of technology and so are really in a position to adopt cloud native much faster and are doing exactly that. This is a leapfrog effect, I think you called it in China. What are some of the ways that the leapfrog effect impacts how these Chinese software companies operate? Yeah, the other term we use is second mover advantage that coming later actually uh, can give them a big heads up, oddly enough. And it really is just an extraordinary thing. I, I, I actually made six trips to China in 2018 and a number of the year before and the year before that. And comparing it to my first visit there in 1997, it's just a completely different country. Everything about it has changed. And when you look at these modern technology companies, Baidu, which many people see as the, the Google of China, and uh, Tencent, which is kind of the, the Facebook and Twitter of China, and then Alibaba, which, which plays a similar role to Amazon, both on the retail side and also uh, with the cloud services, that they're just moving incredibly quickly and, and so eager to adopt uh, technologies that have come out of uh, the West. But one of the really exciting trends we're now seeing is that they're also uh, very eager to contribute technologies back that, that really makes it a, a global open source community. In the United States, we know the dynamics of the cloud providers. Most of the people listening do. Amazon is the biggest, and then there's Azure, and then there's Google, and then there's everything else. Tell me about the cloud provider market in China. It's definitely different. So you have this uh, great firewall of China that the government controls a huge amount of the content that's coming in and out of the country. And that means it's extremely unreliable to try and reach Chinese consumers from websites that are set up internationally. Now, you often can do it. It's, I mean, uh, cncf.io is an example, is one that, that they often are able to reach uh, reliably. But one of the things that Kubernetes, uh, that CNCF has been able to do for our projects is we just set up a content delivery network uh, with Alibaba Cloud inside the Great Firewall. And so that copies all the content from kubernetes.io to kubernetes.cn. And that uh, Chinese site is just uh, far, far, loads far, far faster inside China. But from a high level, Alibaba has a, a similar role in that they're the dominant uh, cloud company in, in China to what Amazon plays in the US. And then um, the other major companies like uh, Huawei and Tencent and Baidu have cloud offerings. And, and then there's a number of smaller ones as well, like NetEase and EasyStack and, and many others. But uh, Alibaba is definitely the 800-pound gorilla there. Possibly the largest Kubernetes cluster in the world runs in China at JD.com. 
Have you learned anything unique about Kubernetes from seeing these large-scale Chinese deployments? Uh, JD.com is the number two retailer in China after Alibaba, and they're running over Kubernetes on over 25,000 servers today, and their largest cluster has more than 5,000 servers. And I, I think the biggest thing that I learned from it is just that the power of open source and, and this idea that this amazing technology is available and that anybody can download it and then learn about it and become an expert in it and, and administer it and roll it out themselves without needing to pay a vendor, without needing to pay licensing fees or anything else is absolutely true. I mean, it is a, a truly extraordinary thing how JD.com just has seized on Kubernetes over the last four years, has been using and upgrading each new version of it, and is now beginning to contribute back and, and look at upstreaming some of their patches and such. But it, it was just an amazing process to get to know them and and to see that kind of adoption, which was you know not encouraged directly by the Kubernetes community or, or, or CNCF, although we do have a team in, in China, but really just does speak to the underlying quality of the software and all the effort that's been put into it. How has the open source ecosystem in China historically compared to that of the U.S., and how does it look today? Well, I, I will give a quick shout out here to Professor Liu of Kopu. We gave him an award at uh, KubeCon Shanghai last month, where he was one of the real pioneers of bringing Linux to China 20 years ago and promoting open source and talking about um, how it, it could really help um, countries like China catch up and, and get ahead. And so I, I don't want to, by any means, make this out as a, a new phenomenon necessarily. But I, I do think that it's the case that you know China tends to be a very young country. The, 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 the vast majority of software developers that we run into are, are uh, younger or have just getting started in the field or in their 20s or 30s. And open source is seen as an extremely standard way of, of doing things. So they're very used to the idea of going out, I'd say, on the web and, and looking at different options and, and finding the best ones. I, I think the change in just the last three or four years has been uh, major initiatives by these big Chinese companies that are really interested in having it be a two-way street and in beginning to have some of the code that, they're, that they've developed internally to solve their problems get open sourced and then promoting it to be more widely adopted uh, around the world. Do Chinese and American engineers collaborate over GitHub, or is there some other social coding tool? Uh, it's definitely over GitHub. GitHub is, is not totally reliable in China, but seems reliable enough. Um, also, a lot of the Chinese developers we talk to do have VPNs. Uh, in order to be able to get access to it if, if they do have trouble. My perception is that the technical English skills of most Chinese developers are relatively strong, that that kind of, I want to look at a GitHub readme and understand the gist of it is something that they're very comfortable with, or um, looking at comments and code or variable names or method names or such. Um, I think they're also often assisted by the pretty decent online translation tools that are out there, both um, Baidu and uh, amazingly, the only Google service that is not blocked by the Great Firewall is Google Translate. 
And so I, I think the, the main answer to the question is, uh, is GitHub. Within Kubernetes, in addition to, to GitHub, you have the mailing lists like Kubernetes Dev. And interestingly, the mail isn't blocked by the Great Firewall. That still gets through. The only issue is, is connecting to the website in order to be able to subscribe or unsubscribe or search the archives. And that, that remains an issue. When you and I spoke in China, you mentioned that there is not this stark distinction between Chinese engineers and American engineers, because oftentimes the Chinese engineers have spent some time in the United States. They work at a major tech company or they go to university and then they might come back to China. They might start a company. They might join a company. What has been the result of that cross-pollination between U.S. and Chinese technology? Oh, I, I think it's just extraordinarily positive, and I really can't say enough about it. My wife was recently a, a mid-career Fulbright scholar, and if you look at the history of that program, it was all about um, enabling academics and other kinds of people to travel around the world and understand each other and and uh, increase communication. And, and I think the tech world is essentially making that happen in uh, a very similar way. So I'll, I'll just call out two specific examples in, in each direction. One is um, startup in Hangzhou. They were keynote speakers at uh, KubeCon China, which is um, Zin and Julia are the co-founders of ChaiCloud. And uh, they both worked at Google for a while and then went back to Hangzhou and have a, a startup that's focused around commercializing Kubernetes there. But in the other direction, I have uh, gotten to know a little bit Evan Yu, who is the creator of Vue.js, and um, he grew up outside of Beijing and speaks spectacularly good English. He says his father uh, made him take English lessons as, as, a, as a kid, which he's now grateful for, but didn't appreciate at the time. And he now lives in uh, New, New Jersey near New York and is, you know, Vue.js is just an incredible open source project as a competitor to React and Angular, but where both of those have uh, huge companies, Google and Facebook backing them in our two of the 30 highest velocity projects uh, in open source, Vue.js is really just him and contributors who, who contribute code that he reviews. And so I, I really just think incredibly highly of having this two-way communication and, and travel and, and interaction back and forth that uh, I think has been so positive for both countries and, and really for the rest of the world. In the United States software market, there is this distinction between, quote, enterprises that have been around for a long time and startups. And obviously, there's a, a blurry line between those two things. But in the U.S., the enterprises are often harder to sell to. They might have regulatory requirements. Startups are a little bit more willing to to take risks. And um, when I go to the KubeCons, I've been to a number of them at this point, I think three, I really like to walk around the vendor booths and just talk to people about their sales process and what has been hard, what kinds of businesses have been easier to sell to, like how willing are people will, uh, to, to adopt Kubernetes. There has been, I think in, around, Co around Copenhagen, KubeCon Copenhagen time, there was really feel there was an increase in willingness of enterprises to, to buy Kubernetes. Everybody was looking for a Kubernetes vendor to help them. And I think 
in China, something similar is happening, although the the refactoring of of older enterprise software is somewhat different. And I think the relationship between the I think it's called ISV, the the like the vendor that will help the enterprise adopt Kubernetes. That relationship is a little bit different than perhaps an Accenture and an enterprise in the United States. Can you tell me about that relationship between enterprises and software vendors in China? I am not sure that it actually winds up being all that different. When we deal with more traditional industries in China, like airlines and banks and and kind of big business, they have many of the same slow um, enterprise buying patterns that uh, you see in the U.S. And I, I mean, I, I do think in general, the typical mid-sized bank just seems to move much faster in China, that there is just a a sort of, I don't know, almost cultural difference of, of things expecting to, to move faster and decisions getting made at the last minute and then uh, getting implemented extremely quickly. My Maybe my favorite example of this is uh, at a, a user event I, I went to, I think in 2016, I met a vendor that said so it was a hotel chain, uh, not targeting to Western tourists so I, I, or, or business people. So I, I wouldn't have stayed there, more like a, a three or four star kind of hotel and in second and third tier cities. But they had a million hotel rooms across China and their entire back end uh, platform was all running on Kubernetes. And at the time, Kubernetes was, I mean, quite new, was, was really just two years old. And so that was a, a pretty bold thing for them to do. And then you, you absolutely have tons of startups, just like you do in the US, that are are doing that kind of hill climbing process of, of trying to search out different business models and, and figure out what works. And so there's people that are hosting it, managed hosting in the cloud and managed uh, and distributions, different combinations of, of services and support and training. And then you also have these these tech giants, which are just really crazy how fast they've grown the, the 10 cents and Alibaba, Baidu and such. And when you visit those campuses, it feels very much like being at a Google or a Facebook or something, even down to the metal slides. And so maybe those move a little bit faster than, than their Western equivalents, but uh, those are probably the ones that seem most just transplanted over. It's been a little more than a month since KubeCon China, and I know your amount of work to organizing that conference was tremendous. Uh, now that you've had some time to reflect on the conference, what takeaways do you have from it? You know, if you wouldn't mind, I, I might actually just ask to turn it back to you, especially because I think you were in Austin and Copenhagen and, and Shanghai. I'd love to hear your thoughts on some of the differences between them. From, from my perspective, I, I was thrilled. We, we had a lot of aspirations going into it of, of having a real KubeCon and not a sort of slimmed down or, or dumbed down version. And, and that we had this aspiration of bringing a lot of Western developers into China and then having a lot of local content as well, as well and really having that two-way communication. And, and I think we really hit all of our expectations along those lines. And then the fact that we did sell out with 2,500 tickets was also just incredibly satisfying and, and uh, just a really positive sign for us. Now, there's an example where uh, on a last minute thing, uh, I believe something like 900 of those tickets were sold the final week, which uh, makes 
makes things extremely challenging as a conference organizer to know uh, what to expect, but just does seem to be the way that, uh, that a lot of decisions get made in China right now. My experience was overwhelmingly positive. So from from what you said about things just moving culturally faster there, what stood out to me even just coming into the country was the airports and how fast things moved through security. And I was just like really pleasantly surprised. There was almost this militaristic you know, speed to which you, you are ushered through security, which I'm very happy to, you know, the faster I can get to my terminal and sit down and read a book, that's better for me. Oh, I, I've consistently commented that I, I feel, and I mean, I'm not an expert in it, but that, that just the Chinese airport security is better than anywhere else in the world. I love the fact that every single person who goes through the metal detector also gets padded down. So you don't have this issue of, oh, are they padding you down because you're Muslim or because you look suspicious or something else? It's just a universal thing, but they do it quickly and efficiently, and they have the staffing and the equipment there that they can do it for 100% of people without uh, really slowing things down much at all. And I think that a metal detector is uh, less risky than like the irradiation booth that they put you through in the United States. Exactly. I guess I'm not sure. Yeah, that's I'm my sure understanding about as that, well. But <laughs> so anyway, the conference though was awesome because so here's the thing is like when i first got to the conference i felt a little bit like i i was like okay so i started walking up to people and started making conversation and very quickly i realized that the fact that i did not speak any chinese was going to be an issue because it was just a a real big barrier there and so i ended up talking to you know some there would be little groups of people where there were people who were who were not at least on the outside i could tell were not chinese and i had my conversations with them and then you know sometimes there were there were people who spoke english and chinese in the conversation and but when i was actually really kind of an inspiring moment for me was when I went to the first session where there, where I used a translator, so you had these little translator things, so you would be you walk into the conference session and they give you a translation device, so you put it in your ear and so you can hear the live translation that you you had translators who were actually translating what the people uh, were presenting, and and I put it in and and I'm you know it goes from what to me is completely unintelligible Chinese to Kubernetes and the cloud and, you know, the same stuff that I hear at KubeCon North America. And, and, and just to be clear, we, we did have that simultaneous interpretation in both directions. And so the Chinese attendees were also able to hear the English talks and, and have that translated into Chinese. Yeah. And and so this is, it just, it, it made me like, I it made me feel, there were some other smaller things, but that was the kind of the biggest thing that made me feel that there is a global hunger for technology and a global hunger for building stuff and there was you know such an absence of whatever chinese us friction exists in you know the the business news and the people searching the news for conflict what I saw was a bunch of people who are just builders and that is an an international human sensation. It just made me, it made me optimistic, frankly. That's great. Yeah, I I definitely feel the same way. 
uh, in the time that I, I spend there. Now, I, I've often had an additional advantage, which is to have a, a simultaneous interpreter who, who walks with me. And, you know, sometimes I, the people, I, I don't speak Chinese, uh, unfortunately. And so sometimes the people I speak with speak shockingly good English, especially when they've never lived in the U.S. But when they're not, and I can just have that person come over and begin begin translating, it, it really is amazing how much we, we do have in common and how uh, interested they are in, in, in what, what CNCF and, and, and this cloud native community is offering. And, and then, of course, vice versa. I will say, just based on your comment, one thing that occurs to me is that um, because I for Seattle coming up next week, one of the things that we, we really do emphasize and talk about is the value of the hallway track. And so it, it occurs to me that we could try and um, formalize that a little bit more when we go back to Shanghai next year in, in June 2019 and um, just have some some live simultaneous interpreters who are stationed at different spots along the hallway. And, you know, no guarantee that they'd be available, but but just that you could grab some people and walk over and, and would allow you to have a, more of that hallway conversation than you might be able to otherwise. Well, and another thing I, I regret not doing is trying to schedule, because you had a simultaneous interpreter that was made available to me, but I had to schedule it. And I wasn't exactly sure who to, who to schedule it with or how to schedule it. But in retrospect, I wish I would have done that a little bit more aggressively because I was unable to do my walk around the expo hall and and con- converse with people just because there was you know it was very rare that the there was an in, both an in, a person that was an engineer that spoke English at at those booths so I didn't really you know I, I saw their diagrams I saw some of their presentations that they had at the expo hall but I was not able to really get a, get the same kind of sense that I would, you know, walking around KubeCon North America and talking to the the Kubernetes businesses there. Yeah, and so we would love to um to to try and formalize that with you a little bit. And I think just on your second visit you would find it easier to ask for those things and just say, "Hey, yes. I'm just going to reserve the person for half an hour or an hour." It definitely makes it a little bit more challenging to have that kind of serendipity where I do feel like it's often just those hallway conversations or running into someone that that is is could be the the highlight of the event. But of course for, you know, most of the people there speak Chinese and so they're all able to to interact uh, perfectly well. So let's talk some about Kubernetes more broadly and the CNCF. The CNCF exists to make cloud native ubiquitous. You want to be a neutral home for cloud native projects to build cloud native solutions. How has the CNCF adapted as an organization over the last year? We have uh, been trying to deal with hypergrowth. So CNCF is the biggest and fastest growing open source organization ever. When um, we got started three years ago, and that's that's literally three years ago um, this week, we had uh, 28 members in the organization and um, zero projects and then soon after Kubernetes. And we now have 346 members and 31 projects. And it's definitely just much more complicated. There's a lot more things that going on. There's many more services that we're offering to our projects and to our members. Um, and so it's definitely um, taken some scaling. And I think many of, of your listeners have experience with startups and know that that scaling can sometimes be a little awkward, but it, it's also been a really fun ride. 
the first two projects to graduate from the CNCF were Kubernetes and Prometheus. And the third project that recently graduated is Envoy, the service proxy created at Lyft. Could you use Envoy as an example case study for how projects get shepherded through the CNCF? Oh, I absolutely. And I, I think it really is a great example and a, a particularly compelling one. So uh, Envoy was originally created by Matt Klein at Lyft, and it was designed to solve a very specific set of issues within Lyft. Fascinatingly, uh, Lyft does not use Kubernetes internally today. And so when Envoy was developed, it was not developed um, with Kubernetes in mind, or certainly not solely with Kubernetes in mind. Like a lot of sort of successful, fast-growing companies that have come up over the last five or 10 years, they they wound up deciding that they needed a container orchestrator and uh, built their own. And that's a pattern that we've seen, I guess, in China again at Alibaba and um, Tencent. We've seen it at Yelp and uh, Sound, Spotify and, and many others. And, and one of the sort of background trends that's happening right now is that a lot of those companies are saying, hey, we're having to invest all these resources just to maintain our internal system. Uh, why don't we go ahead and, and begin the investment to, to migrate over to Kubernetes? And, and I believe Lyft is going through that process as well. But anyway, uh, Matt developed that software. This one way of, of thinking about Envoy, a very limited one, is that Apache as a web server provided ingress to your backend ap applications, ingress meaning connection to the internet, for, and that was sort of the dominant standard for a decade. And then Nginx has, in a lot of ways, supplanted it and become the dominant standard. And, and it's a much more dynamic capabilities and, and higher throughput than Apache. And in a lot of ways, Envoy is, is really targeting that same trend. The, the, the space is often called service proxy, in which it's trying looking at not just, a, say, static web pages out to the internet, but the idea that you've split your application up into microservices. You have dozens or, or hundreds or thousands of different services that all need to communicate to each other. And then Envoy allows them to do that and for you to track it and secure those connections and provides a lot of other functionality as well as connecting the ones that you want to out, out to the internet. So anyway, one other fascinating part about Matt that I, if you want to link in your show notes, he wrote a, a really interesting Medium blog post 18 months ago where when he came out with Envoy and um, a ton of people were interested in it. He got a bunch of proposals from venture capitalists who said he should should quit Lyft and um, go do a startup, and they would fund him to create an Envoy startup. And he um, thought very hard about it and then came back and said, you know, the, the issue with Envoy is it needs to be so tightly integrated into the rest of your cluster and software and microservices that it just doesn't make sense for this to be provided as a software, as a service, or as an open core, or um, one of the other kinds of standard business models. And so he um, both was uh, interested in, in, in having it be open source and having all the functionality be open source, not just an open core model. And then um, he was also interested in having the, the most widespread usage and uh, adoption possible. And so he and uh, Chris Sanchek from CNCF were able to convince Lyft to, to contribute it to CNCF. And, you know, when that contribution happened, it's not like it stopped being Matt's project. Uh, he and the other maintainers of, um, of Lyft, Constance, 
systems, and I think there's seven or eight of them now, are still the ones who are reviewing the pull requests and in charge of the project and everything uh, that they were before. It's just the, the kinds of services that they might have gotten from Lyft or, or not have gotten, like some marketing help, are now being provided by CNCF. So that came in as an incubating project and uh, has matured over time and, and just gotten tons of incredibly high quality pull requests and uh, contributions, di- different features and, and bug fixes and such over the last uh, year and a half. And um, I believe now, at the, the very least, Amazon, Microsoft, and, and Google are either all spinning out commercial services. Amazon announced theirs last week or seriously considering it, uh, as well as just dozens and dozens of other uh, big name organizations that have adopted it. So uh, the aspiration for graduation is as, as opposed to it being this sort of incredibly challenging milestone, that it, it's just a very natural step in the evolution of a project and, and just more of a signifier, a signpost to say, yeah, this this project is incredibly widely used. It's been very carefully vetted and is highly respected. And, and now it is a marketing signaling mechanism to say that we we think enterprises of all sizes and um, sort of aptitudes for openness to risk should really be adopting it. Nginx has been used for so many different purposes. It's used as a, a load balancer to front your entire infrastructure, or it's also been used, like I spoke to Kong recently, and Kong uses Nginx as their sidecar proxy for, for deploying a, a service mesh. What have people built on top of Envoy? Is it as has it been used for as many kinds of purposes as Nginx? Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's it's really in exactly the same space. And I will say that Nginx remains fantastic software, and tons of people use that in production on Kubernetes clusters and other cloud native services. But um, probably the thing that Envoy is is best known for, from in terms of enabling sort of next generation software, is uh, Istio. And so Istio has over the last year and a half gotten a ton of excitement and, and interest around this concept of service meshes. And and again, Matt Klein wrote a, a really good. Medium post that I, I'd recommend that you uh, link to, where he described Envoy and that that role of a, a service proxy as being the data plane that's allowing all of these different services to communicate together, and Istio as being the control plane, which uh, in more sort of traditional systems a decade or two ago would essentially be a role played by the system administrator who would be manually logging on to different services and moving things around or configuring them or pushing new versions and doing blue-green deployments and all that kind of thing. And the idea of Istio is, is to try and automate a huge amount of that functionality. So I, I don't know that everybody who uses Istio realizes this, but Istio, in fact, is built on top of and relies on Envoy. As I've talked to some other uh, people who are leading projects that are involved with the CNCF, I'm starting to get a picture for how the kubernetes ecosystem not it doesn't just improve the deployment of your containers but there's a a whole vision around improving administration so for example this idea of of having the control plane layer gives you a place to push out things to your sidecar proxies that might be envoy and those can communicate with your different services and then you have projects like spiffy for defining the workload identifiers, and then you have projects like, or I th- I th- if, I'm, if I'm getting these right, no, Spiffy Inspire, are for, I think Spiffy Inspire are for identifying the workload objects, and then you have Open Policy Agent, which can be used to define 
policies, and then you could you could use something like a, a, a control plane like Istio to push out those policies, and you could have some uh, a caching system built around your your pods, and so you see just a whole vision for how people can manage infrastructure more intelligently. Can you talk about that that overall vision for for how administration can be improved by this stack? Yeah, I I, I, um, I think you're also a Hacker News reader. And, you know, there's at least an article or two and sometimes many more every week on Kubernetes. And you can never get to more than 10 posts or so before someone has to chime in and just say, yeah, nobody should be using Kubernetes unless you're at, at Google scale. And it's just so complicated and it has so many of these new concepts and so much overhead for you to learn. Um, and really, for, for almost anybody, you should just be able to get by with a couple bash scripts. And of course, if you are a bash expert and you just have a, a small website or something, and even you can even probably get containers running and just have a, a couple bash scripts that, that move back and forth between them. But I do think that Kubernetes is an expression of this larger trend of computing that's been called DevOps or SRE or the pets to cattle. And, and um, there's been a kind of an intriguing process that took place on the public technical oversight committee mailing list over the last year, where we wanted to create a new definition for cloud native and, and what we meant by that. And um, what's pretty interesting about the definition we came up with, I'm, I'm five sentences long, so I'm going to I'm going to read it to you. But is that it doesn't include the word Kubernetes anywhere in it, and it doesn't even include the word orchestration. But I, I do feel like it's trying to get across this idea that it is, and I apologize for uh, the buzzword implosion, but it, it is a, a paradigm shift in how you think about computing and how you think about your application and then how you deploy it and, and work with it. And so the, the this is the CNCF Cloud Native Definition version 1.0. Cloud native technologies empower organizations to build and run scalable applications in modern dynamic environments such as public, private, and hybrid clouds. Containers, service meshes, microservices, immutable infrastructure, and declarative APIs exemplify this approach. These techniques enable loosely coupled systems that are resilient, manageable, and observable. Combined with robust automation, they allow engineers to make high-impact changes frequently and predictably with minimal toil. The Cloud Native Computing Foundation seeks to drive adoption of this paradigm by fostering and sustaining an ecosystem of open source vendor neutral projects. We democratize state of the art patterns to make these innovations accessible for everyone. This whole space is getting so big and like you said hyperscale. I know that the KubeCon Seattle that is coming up next week sold out pretty quickly and it's like 7500 people or something. Are you anticipating a day where the KubeCon Cloud Native Con appendage gets broken up into KubeCon and then separately Cloud Native Con? Like maybe these are two distinct environments? I hope not. I, I mean, anything could happen. I feel like that 
would change would really hurt the community in a lot of ways. And and one of the reasons is that not all that many of the talks at the conference are just about Kubernetes or just about Kubernetes internals. They are often talks about, here's how we use Kubernetes in this new environment, or here's how we use Kubernetes with this new open source project that's not part of CNCF yet, but we think is is really intriguing, or here, here's this edge case we encountered. And then some of the talks are just about all those other projects. But uh, one of the, the sort of underlying concepts of the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, of our, our parent, the Linux Foundation, and, and I would say of open source in general, is that most interactions in the world are not zero-sum games. Now, it, it is the case that we only have a certain number of rooms at KubeCon Cloud NativeCon. And so almost by definition, if, if a talk is, is going to be solely about Prometheus, then it cannot be solely about Kubernetes. But I, I think that's a really sort of artificial and constrained way of looking at it. And that most of the attendees in particular are not just focused on one project to the exclusion of all others. They're really focused on their business and, and the technology problems they're running into, and they're looking for the set of solutions or the ecosystem of solutions that um, they can learn about and then implement themselves. And so I, I do think this concept of a positive sum game that by combining together, we're able to have larger crowds, more funding, more sponsors, and therefore things like more diversity scholarships, more fun events and other kinds of stuff is a really promising one. Now, that said, I totally agree that KubeCon Cloud NativeCon is now going to be a very large conference. So it's actually 8,000 that we have sold out at. And so one of the pieces that we are doing is also offering a set of side conferences. And so, for example, on Monday will be the first ever EnvoyCon as a pre-day conference before KubeCon. And uh, the last couple of years, we've uh, sponsored the Prometheus team has run PromCon in Munich, and they're planning to do that again in 2019. And there'll also be like a gRPC con and such. And so I, I definitely don't want to come off as, as strident on the subject. I mean, I, I feel like there's a lot of different things that we're um, trying and, and different modes that we, we want to experiment with. I, I mean, another huge part is, is the meetups out there where we now have uh, over 150 different meetup groups all around the world. They've had more than 1,600 meetings in the last three years. And so that's just a way that very widely gets a lot of this messaging out there. And then we, we are looking at some other kinds of conferences that we could do that, that might reach different groups in, in different regions. Well, I think what you're what you're encountering is something that AWS reInvent incidentally walked into, which is both the fact that there is massive expansion in people who are interested in software engineering and also the appeal of of the cloud in terms of how accessible it is. And and AWS obviously pioneered that, so in some sense it, it makes sense that they walked into it. But KubeCon CloudNativeCon is kind of an extension of that because it's like, okay, here it's not just kind of, you know, talks that are anchored around AWS services. As inspiring as AWS services are, it's this is more about the entire cloud environment, which encompasses a whole lot of companies and and also a whole lot of open source projects. So it seems like the the scope of, of where it could grow to is is quite large. 
Well, and I'd also emphasize the private cloud aspect of it. I mean, our, our and the and hybrid cloud for that matter. Our aspiration is that if you, as an enterprise, are operating, and and maybe you have a, a commercial distribution on your own hardware in in your own data center, and then you're also operating in a couple different public clouds, that you can go to each of the conferences of that of each of those vendors, but it, it should also be feasible if if to come to KubeCon and be able to book meetings with some of the top architects from from each of those companies. So we, we do think there's some role for us to play as that that vendor neutral multi-cloud hybrid cloud kind of uh, kind of environment. So I know we're we're running up against time, but since we're on the subject of multiple vendors, I talked to Bassam from Upbound earlier this week and we were talking about Kubernetes Federation and the vision of multi-cloud. And I think people want to have access to cloud resources across any cloud because the, I think the clouds are going to get more and more differentiated. Obviously, they'll, they'll overlap, but you won't want to have to choose the services that you use based off of what cloud your monolith is anchored to. Explain what Kubernetes Federation is and why it's important, and I guess what your vision is for what a multi-cloud company would look like. Sure. I mean, I think the first thing that I would just say is that if you're looking for absolutely rock-solid deployment, hosting, running of of your software, and, and not just of modern microservices, but of the monoliths and everything, then Kubernetes is is a fantastic choice. And we have, you know, dozens and hundreds now of examples of, of companies doing that. Federation, I, I would say, is really on the leading edge of new development and, and just isn't quite there yet. So in particular, the multi-cluster group in, in Kubernetes started with a Federation V1 approach, and then they went back and, and based on some of the learnings and some of the challenges they ran into have 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 gone forward on a, on a federation v2 and so I, I think there is an aspiration that a lot of end users have today that just like they can build a bunch of containers and write a bunch of yaml and say okay this container needs to run on at least four machines and this one needs a gpu every time it runs and this envoy sidecar needs to be deployed in every pod and and, and those sorts of levels of of interaction that they would love to be able to say, and I want you to decide whether it should be running on my private cloud or which of these public clouds based on the current spot pricing or based on the deal that I have or based on the need for some special service that they're offering. And I I think my sort of high-level understanding of of the space right now is that functionality is not quite fully baked yet. And so I think there's a lot of great work going on in the multi-cluster SIG that definitely encourage people to get involved in. That's, you know, those are all public meetings and interactions, mailing lists and GitHub repos. And then unsurprisingly, you also have folks like Upbound that are saying, we think that we could actually implement this best at a, I'm going to say higher layer than Kubernetes. It's, it's a little misleading whether I would be better as a metaphor to describe as a lower layer, but I'll definitely say a different layer than Kubernetes, that we have this new software cross-plane and we think that can be a tool for provisioning your clusters in multiple different clouds and then ensuring that they're run correctly and such. And I mean, I think Bassam would say that Crossplane is very new software. It's it, it's promising. A lot of people who looked at it were, were quite intrigued. I don't think people are running it in production yet, but I, I'm thrilled to just see the level of... Um, 
ferment and innovation that is that is going on in, in that space that I, I don't think it's likely that most enterprises are going to be interested or even able to standardize on just a single cloud provider. I mean, obviously, if you're just a, a little startup and you're you're just getting started today, then you very likely just want to pick one cloud provider and focus on building out your product and finding product market fit and and not worried about saving the last penny here and there. And, and it's quite likely, in fact, that a hosted Kubernetes service would be a great choice for that. But once you get to a certain scale and and especially for, say, the global 5,000 enterprises, where one of the things that we see again and again is uh, so many of them are the result of acquisitions or the result of mergers and, and are constantly doing new acquisitions. And so even if they would like to be single cloud in some principle, in reality, they're not. And so in, in that environment, I, I think it's great that there is this innovation going on. And, and again, I would sort of describe it as, as hill climbing, as different enterprises and, and startups and such trying to find the right set of um, of approaches that, that that make that work. But what's great is that it's really taking place uh, mostly today in an open source ecosystem where everybody's going to be able to get the advantage of their work. You've run several companies before, and you've worked in technology for more than 20 years. Can you close off by giving us some perspective on how company building today from a technological point of view how does that compare to what it was like in the 90s? Oh, t I mean, big picture, it just seems awesome. I mean, it's just, there's so many just super annoying things that we needed to worry about 25 years ago. I mean, I just as a, a random example, I, I set up the first music store on the web in 1994, and I have this memory of... Um, uh, I can't even quite remember why we need to recompile something, but we wanted to use glibc, and there was a problem on. And we were using Ultrix at the time. This makes me really sound old. And we needed to get the uh, Sun compiler, and we were willing to pay for it. And there was no Sun salesperson that was awake in the U.S. And we had to reach out to the Ch uh, Japan office, and it was this incredibly expensive international phone call, and just ridiculousness like that. That's so time-consuming, memorable, I guess, in retrospect. That that just, you know, today would be a homebrew command on a Mac or an apt-get command on Linux, and, and you would get the software that would, would just run. Now, that said, I mean, I think things have improved dramatically. I, I would also say... Certainly, one of the big takeaways I I got from the the keynotes and the sessions I attended in in Austin and Copenhagen was a consensus among almost all the leaders in the cloud native community that the ultimate winning solution was very likely to be Kubernetes underneath, but that the standard way that most developers were going to be deploying their applications on top of it was not what people are doing today, which is generally building a Docker container and then writing some YAML and and pushing that up with kubectl. Uh, that there's now there was no consensus on what the the correct approach would be. Lots of different people were proposing lots of different technologies and different ways of integrating with CI/CD and other kinds of things. And I, I expect in Seattle next week to hear many more ideas on that. But I, I genuinely do think that we're 
you know, standing on the shoulders of giants and that Kubernetes is all based on the work of, of, of Linux and, and is a, in, in many ways it's just exposing features and capabilities of Linux or say containers are. And of course, Linux is based on, on Unix and a lot of the, the work in computer science that had gone before that. And I think there's tons of opportunities left for uh, making developers' lives easier. In, in reality, software development today remains an incredibly frustrating activity for a lot of the time. And, and people talk about what a small percentage of their week they really feel like they get in that flow mode of, of, of writing useful code and, and seeing it interact and, and move forward the way they want versus just annoying setting up this IDE or setting up this container or figure out Googling this, deep, this strange error message and finding the answer on Stack Overflow and all the other pieces. So I, I, I definitely feel like we're very much in the middle of a, of a long story right now. Dan Kahn, thanks for coming back on. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, I hope you have a great time in uh, in Seattle, and I will give a quick pitch. Uh, we're sold out there, but we would love to see uh, many of your listeners in Barcelona, May 20th to 23rd of 2019. We think it's going to be uh, just also an amazing event. Wonderful. All right. Well, hopefully I'll see you in Seattle. Great. Thanks, Jeff. Wow. 